Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and on today's podcast, we are joined by Luke Coffey, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Luke has also acted as Special Advisor on Defense Issues to the British Conservative Party, Special Advisor to the British Defense Secretary at the UK Ministry of Defense, and Director of the Foreign Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for chatting with us. In December, you wrote a policy paper entitled Preparing for the Final Collapse of the Soviet Union and the Dissolution of the Russian Federation. So I was under the impression that the USSR collapsed over 30 years ago. Is that not the case? That's not the case. Uh, Many people think this. Uh, I have a a different view. Uh, What we saw in 1991 was the beginning of the collapse. Uh, History has the ability to condense time. I mean, think about today how we view um, uh, ancient Egypt and the different dynasties there. You know, they're all compressed uh, by by time and how we view them. I I believe that uh, historians 200 years from now will view the collapse of the Soviet Union as um, taking place over this course of time. And that the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 was perhaps the most consequential act and maybe even the final act of this collapse. And the reason why I think we're seeing it collapse before our eyes today is because just look at what's happening around the region, whether it's uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan having border disputes and skirmishes, the ongoing fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Karabakh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2008, Russia's annexation of Crimea in, in 2014, and everything else in between all of that, we see what's happening now on the Eurasian landmass as the Soviet Union still collapsing. It hasn't ended, the dust hasn't settled, and we don't know how it's going to end, and we need to be prepared for it. So if it's been 30 years leading up to this point, what kind of timing are we looking at for the last gasp of the Soviet Union? Are we talking a year or two, a decade, another 30 years? I think this will be measured in years, without a doubt. I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war there will be measured in years and not weeks or months like many hope. And we have to be prepared for the long term. And I think that the consequences are unpredictable. In 1991, when we saw the emergence of 15 new countries on the Eurasian landmass, former Soviet states like Georgia and Estonia and you know Kazakhstan and, and these places, I describe this as the, the safety glass breaking. This was like the glass in your car windshield when it shatters. It shatters in a safe, neat way. The next shattering of the Russian Federation will not be like this. Don't think Estonia 1991, think Chechnya 1994. Uh, It'll be completely unpredictable. It'll be dangerous. It'll be unstable. And you have a a number of uh, indicators that lead to this uh, conclusion. You know, you have across Russia, large numbers of ethnic minority groups with their unique identity, history, religion, culture, language that's separate from you know, the traditional Slavic Orthodox world that we think of when we think of Russia. For years and and decades, and in some cases centuries, there's been 
uh, under the surface desires for self-determination and separatism and independence. I think these desires will be brought to the surface if we see a collapse of the central governments in Moscow. And then on top of this, you'll have tens of thousands of young men with combat experience that are disproportionately from these ethnic minority groups that have been fighting in Ukraine that will someday come home to not very much. And I think you'll have this uh, perfect storm that could lead to the further breakup of the Russian Federation and the final collapse of the Soviet Union. Is there a best case scenario and a worst case scenario here? I mean, from a U.S. perspective. Well, certainly, uh, although it's difficult to uh, you know, pr- predict how this might happen. And I do want to say on the outset, I'm not advocating for any of this to happen. I, I think that the risks are very high for U.S. interests and U.S. security if the Russian Federation does collapse and, and break up and we see this further fragmentation uh, on the Eurasian landmass. However, I do think it's a real possibility and we have to be prepared. The obvious worst case scenario would be some of Russia's 5,000 or so nuclear weapons becoming unaccountable and ending up on the, on the black market into the hands of non-state actors or uh, being consumed or absorbed into a new uh, so-called states that might emerge if the Russian Federation collapses further. The best case scenario would be maybe what I would describe as a Ataturk approach to the breakup of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, where you you find a sensible leader who's a nationalist, but who also has limited expectations on on what the state should control and should do, and uh, jettisoning the trappings of empire like Ataturk did, and just focus on consolidating the Turkish state uh, on the Anatolian Peninsula, uh, as opposed to, you know, North Africa and most of the Middle East and into the Caucasus and then the Balkans. Uh, This would probably be the best case scenario, but I don't see any indications that such a statesman or stateswoman exists in in Russia today. You often hear a lot of praise for Navalny, and uh, without a doubt, he's a very courageous man fighting Vladimir Putin and his regime. However, he's a Russian nationalist who has a, a track record of xenophobia, Islamophobia, and even racism when it comes to certain groups like Georgians. And he supported Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, and he's had mixed views on Russia's involvement in Ukraine uh, before the February invasion. So uh, again, I don't think he is like the Thomas Jefferson that we're all hoping for in the in the West. And we should just acknowledge and accept it and be humble in recognizing our limitations, the limitations of the West and what we can do to change Russia or transform Russia into some sort of Western-style, open, democratic, free market society. What would a collapse of the Russian Federation mean for areas like Transnistria or Kaliningrad or Karelia? Well, these are the unknowns. These are the wild cards that we have to start thinking about now. If there's a complete collapse in the Russian state and it descends into chaos or insurgency or civil war or separatism across most of Russia. You could also see a situation where places that Russia has a military occupation, whether it's Transnistria and Moldova or Abkhazia or South Ossetia in Georgia, that uh, these places 
could be brought back under the control of their of their home governments. And we in the West should be thinking about this. Um, and we should also be thinking about some of these border disputes that uh, exist, whether it's the northern territories between Japan and Russia, um, or there are certain islands in the Caspian Sea that are disputed between Kazakhstan and Russia and are thought to have oil and gas deposits nearby. And then, of course, you know, what, what's the future of Kaliningrad, Russia's uh, exclave that's, you know, located between uh, Lithuania and Poland? Um, you know, what happens to all this? We need to start thinking about this now. What do we do when um, certain uh, ethnic uh, groups inside Russia, ethnic regions declare independence or call for self-determination? How do we address these desires in accordance with existing international law and norms and also in U.S. interests. Uh, we have to think about, you know, setting off a domino effect. Uh, the Catalonians, the Scots will say, well, why, why do the Dagestanis get self-determination and independence and we don't? We have to think about how we handle these very sensitive and complex issues. And all I'm calling for is for policymakers to start thinking about this now instead of thinking about it, you know, as it's happening. What responsibility do Western nations have in the reconstruction and stabilization of potentially former Russian republics? Well, there's no obligation, but I think it's in America's interest to work with our European partners to um, help with uh, reconstruction efforts, uh, to provide stability, to help countries and partners in the region exert their sovereignty across the whole of their territory. An example would be Georgia. Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia brought back under Tbilisi's control might need some uh, reconstruction uh, attention, reconstruction efforts. And I think it's in our interest to do this because it would help Georgia stabilize the region and stabilize their country, which could reduce the possibilities of armed conflict in the future. We should also consider the need to stabilize or or contain, I should say, the situation inside the Russian Federation as we know it on a map today inside these borders. Uh, I already talked about how we should not try to transform a post-Putin Russia into some sort of Jeffersonian democracy, uh, but we should assume that if we see the uh, House of Cards collapse, that there will be a lot of instability in the country. And one thing we can do is help the countries surrounding Russia or help the countries in the region contain this fighting so it doesn't spill over. And we should be working now with like-minded partners and allies and willing participants in the region to boost their border security capabilities, to boost their security services, to boost their armed forces and their law enforcement capabilities so they can play a role at containing their own frontiers with Russia, their own borders with Russia. And this could also have an impact in terms of, you know, the loose nuclear weapons that could emerge and, and, you know, these stronger border controls and early detection uh, processes could help mitigate that threat as well. So there's a lot we can be doing now to prepare for this eventuality. So what kind of destabilization should the U.S. be preparing for in areas where Russia has enjoyed a lot of influence, like Serbia and Syria. Clearly, in this scenario I outline, and it's a very broad scenario with a lot of different variables and outcomes, but in the general scenario of the 
collapse of the Russian Federation as we know it today. This means Russia's influence in regions around the world that it, it enjoys influence will decline. Whether this is Syria and Libya, uh, parts of Libya, I should say, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Central Asia. And we should be prepared to engage with these different regions of the world, perhaps in a different manner, more in a taking the initiative uh, to try to engage and, and take advantage of Russia's lack of influence or declining influence. We can do this by just old school bilateral diplomacy, reaching out, U.S. Secretary of State traveling to countries that he or she hasn't been to in a while. I mean, to think that it's been now a decade since a U.S. Secretary of State has vis visited either Armenia or Azerbaijan is extraordinary. Secretary Clinton was the last U.S. Secretary of State to visit uh, Armenia or Azerbaijan. There's an organization uh, that's not well known in the United States, even though it was it was heavily pushed for by the United States in the 1990s called Guam. It's an organization, a regional block of countries of Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Moldova to coordinate and work together through economic policies, cultural exchanges, trade policies, and, and whatnot. This still exists today. They still meet today. They have a secretariat. They have a headquarters. They have a chairman. We should uh, be engaging with Guam. Uh, the last time there's been a U.S.-Guam ministerial meeting at the foreign secretary level was uh, 2017. And we should also acknowledge that um, Turkey is going to have a role in all of this, especially in the Caucasus and Central Asia, because of uh, you know, the, the shared Turkic identity, language, culture, history. Uh, and you know there are a lot of issues that we have with Turkey, without a doubt. But Turkey is an ally inside NATO, and we have a long track record of good cooperation with, with Turkey, notwithstanding the current bilateral problems we've had in recent years. And we should look towards Ankara as a way to maybe help fill the vacuum that will be created with the withdrawal of uh, Russian influence ac across the region. You mentioned in your report the importance of holding Russian leadership accountable. If the Russian Federation collapses entirely, what does that accountability look like? Well, I mentioned in my report that we should consider the possibility of establishing a special tribunal, which President Zelensky has called for, to hold accountable the senior members of uh, the Russian governing elite for the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. I, I think this is something that we are morally obligated to do even if some of these officials are tried in absentia, just because they are no longer like uh, the defense minister or the president or prime minister of Russia doesn't mean that they're automatically absolved of their, their crimes that were committed in, in Ukraine. And, and I think we should, you know, if just for symbolic reasons, I mean, do I ever think Vladimir Putin is going to be sitting in a, in a court? No, I don't. But um, you never know. But I, I think it's highly unlikely. But we should we should make it known that this reckless uh, 19th century behavior in the 21st century is not going to go unnoticed or, or without justice. So I think this is something that we should consider. And also, you know, you just never know um, when the chaos emerges, if we see the collapse of the Russian Federation, 
you know, some of these senior officials could be very useful bargaining chips for new leaders that would emerge across Russia in their engagement with the West. So I wouldn't say it's completely impossible or completely rule out the idea that some of these officials would end up in, in the dock. But uh, I think I do think it's highly unlikely. And we also shouldn't forget that um, while Vladimir Putin is ultimately responsible for his actions in Ukraine, you know, it wasn't like the, the Russian ministers and the, the Russian elites who were in Bucha pulling the trigger and raping women. These were Russian soldiers that were doing this. So we have to also look at this as a, a Russia problem and not just a Putin problem. Uh, and we have to look at this issue uh, on the whole. I was in Bucha um, a couple of months ago and I saw firsthand what happened, uh, the, the mass graves and the destruction of property and and the shattering of lives. And uh, this cannot go um, unpunished, basically. So someone needs to be held accountable. You mentioned in your report that it could be seen as an opportunity for the accelerated enlargement of NATO and the European Union. Can you talk more about that? Well, one of the biggest um, roadblocks to Euro-Atlantic integration, so bringing new members inside NATO or new members inside the EU, has been Russia. We all pretend like Russia doesn't have a veto on any of the stuff, but they have a de facto veto because Moscow has worked out the perfect formula to keep a country out of NATO or out of the EU. They invade it and then partially occupy it. And they know, Moscow knows that NATO as a security alliance doesn't want to bring in a country that's already partially occupied. So if the Russian state is taken out of the equation, if we see uh, you know, the collapse of the Russian Federation or we see chaos where there's no interest in Moscow on what's happening in Abkhazia, for example, or Transnistria, then we should, we being NATO and perhaps even the EU, although as an American, we have less of a say on this matter, but we should be prepared to you know, bring these countries in that work so hard over the years to become a member. It's not like they're starting from scratch. They've been working for, for years and in some cases decades to get into the club and they've been blocked unofficially by, by Russia. And there are a lot of institutional questions that have to be answered in terms of um, bringing new members. And this is really more of an EU issue but in terms of voting weights and seats in the European Parliament and, and this and that. You know, when you bring in new countries, it adds more population to the EU, which get to redistribute the voting blocks and everything. The EU should start thinking about this now. Uh, we know what the populations of these countries are. We know what institutional reforms might be needed to bring these countries into the uh, union. We should not think about this as it's happening. We should start thinking about this now. I just, I just think it's prudent policy to start thinking a little creatively instead of you know, just going with the flow all the time. How might the collapse of the Russian Federation impact the United Nations? I don't think there'll be much impact on the UN. Um, you know, whatever emerges out of the collapse of the Russian Federation, the successor state will keep its seat on the UN Security Council. I cannot imagine a scenario where Russia loses its uh, its permanent seat on the UN Security Council. I guess one area um, that will really challenge um, the uh, UN Charter and really challenge um, the norms of, of the United Nations will be 
these calls for self-determination that could emerge. This is always a contentious issue, um, especially in the early days of the United Nations during the time of decolonization across much of you know, South Asia and Africa and Latin America. There are whole uh, UN committees that uh, were established and still operate today to work on issues of decolonization. And they've been mainly hijacked by certain agendas. You know, like a good example is you know, the Falkland Islands. You know, the, the people of the Falkland Islands have repeatedly said in free and fair referenda that they want to remain British. Argentina says no, uh, it's part of Argentina. And, you know, Argentina's allies will get on these committees and cause problems, for example, for the Falkland Islanders. So I wouldn't say that the UN has necessarily had a recent track record at facilitating decolonization. But uh, you could see a whole new wave of uh, self-determination and decolonization across the Eurasian landmass. The problem is we in the West, we've been programmed to think of colonization as being a bunch of white Europeans showing up on a ship somewhere uh, in Africa or South America, and then, you know, landing and taking everything and killing the locals. Um, there was another side of colonization that happened uh, by the Russian Empire, and it wasn't done by ship. It was done by horse and by foot and, and by the sword. Uh, and we have to think about the decolonization process in this manner as well, for there ever to be real stability and security across the Eurasian landmass. I saw an interview of yours with the Kyiv Post, and you said something that really stuck with me. You said, Americans need to want Ukraine to win more than they just hope that Russia loses. Could you elaborate on what exactly that means? Well, right now, we just arm Ukraine and provide Ukraine with the weapons it needs to survive. And it seems like before they can unlock the next level of U.S. support, U.S. military support, they either have to undergo some sort of horrific event uh, or some great battlefield victory. Um, it's like they have to prove that they're suffering to some great degree or prove that they are very capable and have earned the next level of military equipment. The examples I give for, for these two extremes are uh, with the prolific use of Iranian drones and Russian ballistic missiles to attack civilian infrastructure. Uh, it wasn't until the, the, the big airstrikes were ramped up at, in October and into November that we finally decided to give Ukraine Patriot missiles. And now we have to wait weeks for them to train on the Patriot missiles. They should have had Patriots months ago. Or take the recent announcement of the Bradley uh, armored fighting vehicles being finally sent to Ukraine. I think it was the successful counterattacks around Kharkiv and Kherson in the fall that gave America the confidence to provide Ukraine with this next level of technology and capability. We have to start wanting Ukraine to win and equipping them to win on the battlefield. Uh, I remember during the first week of the large-scale invasion uh, last year, uh, there was already this debate about providing Ukraine with F-16s. And at the time, I asked one of my colleagues, who's an expert on the Air Force and, you know, Air Forces and aviation and combat aviation, I asked him, I said, hey, what about this idea about F-16s? And he said, Luke, it's not going to work because it wouldn't be until July that they're trained up to use them. 
Well, now we're you know approaching the one year anniversary of, of the war. We're in January of 2023. You mean to tell me that Ukraine could have been using F-16s for the past six months? Uh, we have to start thinking long term. We have to start acknowledging the sad reality that this war will likely last years. And we have to arm Ukraine for victory. And we have to, as you quoted me, we have to start wanting Ukraine to win more than we just hope Russia is going to lose. Does that include the long range weapons that the U.S. really doesn't seem to want to send? We have to provide Ukraine with the long range fires so they can continue to wreak havoc on Russia's uh, supply depots and supply lines and logistics. Abrams, uh, we need more main battle tanks. The Bradleys are a good thing, but we need to add F-16s to this. And we need to focus on some of the less uh, perhaps sexier side of things. The continuing flow of ammunition is so important, whether it's small rounds or it's 155 millimeter artillery rounds. Both sides are burning through artillery rounds at a rate the world has not seen uh, probably since World War II. What this war in Ukraine has done has um, been a wake-up call for U.S. defense industry. I mean, thank God we're, we, the American, we're not the ones involved uh, with boots on the ground in this fight against Russia because we'd be in all sorts of trouble with our um, manufacturing base and manufacturing capability and our stockpiles. This has been a dry run for the United States and uh, and the war ha- against Ukraine by Russia has really exposed many of the shortcomings that could have been deadly or consequential for the U.S. had we been involved in the major war against a major power. That's really reassuring. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Luke Coffey, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. You can read Preparing for the Final Collapse of the Soviet Union and the Dissolution of the Russian Federation and other reports on the Hudson Institute website, hudson.org. And follow Luke on Twitter, at Luke D. Coffey. That's L-U-K-E-D-C-O-F-F-E-Y. Join me in another episode for more updates. And until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.